Yields are revisiting their highs as the bond market digests the fact that the Fed will have to go higher for much longer, but stocks are refusing to break down. I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS. Welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and BS. I'm Graham Summers, and today is Monday, September 18th, 2023. Well, a lot's been going on in the bond market. What's happened is essentially the two-year Treasury yield, which is the yield that the Fed tends to track to discern where it needs to put rates, has jumped from about 3.9% to 5% where it sits today. Now, this is quite a big jump. In fact, it's right where the yield on this treasury was trading back in March of 2023, so about six months ago, when the regional banking system started to blow up in the United States and the Fed and the treasury were forced to do a behind-the-scenes bailout. So the main point I'm trying to make to you is that the issue that was a big problem for stocks and banks and the like has resurfaced with the yield on the two-year treasury returning to retest its former highs. Interestingly enough, however, nothing seems to be breaking right now in the financial system. Part of this is due to the fact that the Fed continues to be bailing out the regional banking system behind the scenes through a lending facility, but it also appears that the stock market has become very resilient to macro developments. The yield on the two-year treasury being at this level, the last time we had that, the S&P 500 was trading below 4,000. Today, the S&P 500 is around 4,500, so it's more than 10% higher, despite the fact the yield on the two-year treasury is back in the danger zone. So that's pretty fascinating. In fact, stocks are actually quite richly valued on a valuation basis. The last time that the yield on the two-year treasury was around this level, stocks were being traded at 17 times forward earnings. They're currently trading at 19 times forward earnings, which is pretty extraordinary considering that the Fed is trying to tighten monetary policy and it's also shrinking its balance sheet via quantitative tightening. The point I'm trying to make here is that the macro backdrop is actually rather ugly as far as bond yields and Fed policy are concerned, yet stocks just don't seem to care. Whenever they do drop down because the selling pressure outweighs the demand, the buyers quickly step in and you see things kind of just navigating in this consolidation range. In fact, the S&P 500 peaked in early July, but it hasn't really done much since. It peaked at 4,600. It's now at 4,450. And it's essentially been trading in a 1% range up and down for the last couple weeks. Ultimately, stocks are sort of going nowhere. Now, why is this? Well, part of this is because the S&P 500 is being propped up by just a handful of large tech plays. 
If you look at an equal weighted S&P 500, so that's an index in which each stock receives the same weighting or one five hundredth of the total index, it's back at its 200-day moving average and has actually fallen quite a bit. So my point here is that the overall index is being propped up by just a handful of very large names. Because remember, the S&P 500 is not evenly weighted. What I mean is certain companies receive much heavier weights than the others. And the companies that receive the largest weighting are tech companies. They account for about 28% of the total market index weight. That's not only the largest sector by weight, but it's actually larger than both the second and the third largest sectors by weight combined. So if you have the large tech players, the Apples, the Metas, the Alphabets, the NVIDIAs, all holding up, you know, even if they're just kind of correcting or consolidating a bit, but the other 495 or 490 companies out of the S&P 500 have been dropping, you'll still get the market hold up, holding up overall. That was kind of a word salad, so let me say this again. If you have the large tech players holding up nicely, even if the other 490 companies in the S&P 500 are dropping, the overall S&P 500 isn't really going to go down much. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Investors are hiding out in the big tech plays, which is giving us some resilience despite the negative macro backdrop. Now, I want to be clear here. The negative macro backdrop I'm talking about pertains primarily to what's happening in bonds and what's happening with the Fed. The actual economy seems to be holding up relatively well, which I know is baffling because inflation is so high. And the reason for this is because we're in this bifurcated or two-tier economy right now. It's an economy in which anyone earning under 80000 a year is struggling quite a bit because of inflation. But those who are above that, specifically quite a bit above that, are actually doing very, very well. Why is that? Well, for one thing, consider what's happened with, with interest rates. Back when interest rates were at 0.25%, there wasn't really much places where you could go to get decent interest income. Now interest rates are at 5%. There are people who have large pools of capital that are collecting 5 or even more percent a year on their capital with relatively no risk. So if you say have a million dollars in a money market fund, that's $50,000 in discretionary income risk-free without ever touching that million dollars to begin with, just due to what rates are doing. For those who are in the lower portion of the economy, higher rates has been a problem because it means they're paying more on their credit card, on their student loans, and the like. The other thing that's holding the economy up is the fact that the federal government is running its largest fiscal deficits relative to GDP, excuse me, relative to GDP outside of war times. If you look at a chart, there's one on the St. Louis Federal Reserve's website. You can look up deficit relative to GDP. We're actually running our largest deficit as a percentage of GDP since World War II. It's actually the largest peacetime deficit in history on a relative basis. And so th what this means is that the government is spending so much money that even if it's bringing in $4 trillion in taxes, it's spending so much money that it's running a massive deficit, which is being fueled by the bond market. So one way of putting this is that the government is spending just oodles and oodles and oodles of money, and it's doing this at a time when the economy is actually still growing. Normally, the government runs these kinds of deficits during recessions because it spends to try and cushion the contraction. This time around, and this started with COVID, the government's actually spending huge amounts of money while the economy is still growing. And as a result of that, the economy's remaining quite resilient, 
mainly because of this sort of socialist government spending that's going on. Now, we have to remember that 2024 is actually a presidential and congressional election year. So the odds of the government pumping the brakes on this stuff anytime soon is very low. So what I'm saying by this is that we may see this kind of muddle through, continue to grow, but not that fantastically fast economy due to the fact that there's enough capital that's being used via rates to generate discretionary income and the fact that the government's just pumping so much money into the economy. This is why we're seeing this weird, screwed up world where people are complaining and saying it's very difficult to afford things, and yet the economic data just isn't rolling over and collapsing yet. Based on just basic economics, one would have thought inflation would have put us into a recession by now, but because the government's spending so much money and there's also just a lot of money sitting around, things are kind of muddling along. And I think that's probably going to be the case for most of the next six months. Some of the data is showing signs of economic weakening, but it's not enough for us to be certain there's a recession hitting right here and now. Speaking of inflation, I'm seeing signs that inflation has very likely bottomed for 2023. The official inflation measure is the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. That hit a low of 3%. In June, it's now up to 3.7%. Indeed, this brings us back to a point I've been focusing on for some time, which is that if you look at the portions of the Consumer Price Index that have actually been in decline, it's mostly been energy. And the reason why energy prices have been in decline is because the CPI is measured on a year-over-year basis. What that means is that on any given month, you're comparing the data from 12 months prior. So if you look at August of 2023, that data is being compared to August of 2022. And oil spiked really high in March and April of 2022 due to Russia invading Ukraine and some other issues that were going on at the time. Since that time, oil's been in a prolonged downturn. And as a result of this, all of the data that started in March and April of 2023 on a year-over-year basis was in a very steep decline. So it looked as though energy prices have been collapsing a lot, which made the overall CPI go down. Again, the only numbers in the CPI that are going down are energy prices. It's true that on a year-over-year basis, the pace of growth in the other measures like shelter and food has slowed but it's still going up. So what I'm saying is that on a year-over-year basis, the prices of things continue to rise, albeit at a slower pace. The only area in which prices are down is oil prices. But the problem with that is now that we're through July of 2023, on a year-over-year basis, oil is actually no longer down much at all. In fact, it's starting to be up on a year-over-year basis by a little bit currently. So this tells us that On a year-over-year basis, the only part of the consumer price index that's been down is going to stop going down, which should suggest the CPI continues to go up from here. That could potentially be a major issue for stocks because it would mean that yields on treasuries would have to rise higher to accommodate the rise in inflation. And it would also suggest that the Fed is going to have to leave interest rates much higher for much longer. Currently, the effective Fed funds rate is between 5.25% and 5.5%. Now, the issue here is not so much is the Fed going to have have to hike rates a lot more. Maybe the Fed does one more time or maybe two more times. No, the issue is that the Fed's going to have to get rates to these levels and keep them here for six months, maybe even a year. And we've seen this with the dot plots, which is essentially a projection of what the Fed thinks it's going to be doing. Now, if you wind back the clocks 
just about four or five months ago, the bond market was telling us that it thought the Fed would have rates below 4% this time in two years. The fact that the yield on the two-year Treasury is now at 5% tells us that with interest rates at 525 to 5.5%, it sees the Fed cutting rates at most twice within 24 months. Now, that's quite a big jump. Just a few months ago, the bond market was expecting three or four rate cuts by May of 2025. It's now saying that by September of 2025, the Fed will have at most cut rates maybe once, tops twice. And that's quite a big deal. It changes the dynamic of the bond market because on the previously, the bond market was saying, okay, the Fed's going to hike rates quite a lot, but once it gets rates to their highs, it's going to start cutting and we're very quickly going to be back in an easing cycle. That's very different from the higher for longer narrative that we're seeing now from bonds, which is that the Fed's going to have to get rates to these current levels, maybe a little higher, and then leave them there for maybe a year or more. That starts to put a strain on the system because it implies that rates are going to have to be at the elevated levels for quite a while, which means stocks have quite a bit of competition in terms of investments. Back when rates were around zero, there was this thing called the TINA trade. It stood for there is no alternative, or TINA, which meant that you could, if you wanted income or you wanted growth, you had to go only to stocks because bonds were paying nothing and they were going nowhere. But if bonds are going to be paying 5% or more for two years going forward, that's quite a lot of competition for capital compared to what stocks are offering. And it makes the case to own stocks here not quite as attractive. So again, we're at a kind of weird crossroads. There's a lot happening right now. Fed policy is not really benefiting the stock market or the financial system in terms of being risk-on. The bond market is telling us that stocks are quite richly valued and probably should correct here. But the government is spending so much money that the economy is kind of plodding along, and we're not going into the kind of recession you would need for the Fed to start easing conditions, which would bring yields back down. This would reduce strain on the Treasury for financing the U.S.'s deficits and the U.S.'s fiscal position. And it would also mean the stocks are no longer quite so expensive. But unfortunately, that's not happening right now. We've got this higher for longer. We've got inflation refusing to die. Inflation's rebounding even in the heavily massaged official data points. And so this opens the door to a very precarious situation. It's one we have to keep an eye on. I think it's why much of the stock market's actually already correcting, but the big tech players are holding everything up. And that's what we really need to be watching is the Apples, the Googles, excuse me, the Alphabets, the Metas, the NVIDIAs. If those stocks start breaking down, then we'll get a more sizable correction, possibly with the S&P 500 dropping down to 4,200. I would see that as a great area to be buying, provided we don't start having the economy slip into recession. So really, it's everything's hinging on big tech here. If big tech starts to correct, the overall market's going to go down. Probably we're going to see a healthy 10% correction peak to trough. That's totally normal for a new bull market, assuming we're in one. And it would essentially see the stock market dropping down to test its 200-day moving average. Again, totally normal, totally expected for a bull market. Nothing to be terrified of. It would be a great buying opportunity. Outside of stocks, oil's quite extended to the upside. It had a nice run from about $65 a barrel to 91 where it is today. It's about it's quite extended above its 50 and 200 day moving averages. Normally, it's at levels in which you would see it correct here. I wouldn't be surprised to see it drop back down to $80 a barrel. That'd probably be a great place to consider buying. Gold looks just awful. I don't really like it here. A big reason for that is the fact yields 
are remaining high, and the U.S. dollar has been strong. If you want to see gold really ignite to the upside, you need to see the dollar roll over. The dollar's been up now nine weeks in a row. It's been quite a bull run. So the fact gold's held up so well during that period is bullish, but overall you need the dollar to roll over and you need bond yields to start playing ball for the macro setup to benefit gold in a big way. So overall, the playbook right now is that stocks are holding up and doing relatively well, primarily because they're an inflation hedge and they're not really going anywhere, but they're doing better than bonds and they're doing better than cash in terms of an inflation-adjusted basis. And so people are putting capital to work in stocks, which is ultimately focusing on just a handful of big tech names, and that's benefiting the overall index due to the fact that the S&P 500 is so heavily weighted towards big tech. The macro setup is such that we should see some kind of correction here with the S&P 500 going down to 4,200, but we need the big tech plays to break down for that to unfold. All in all, the big issue here is that everything's digesting the fact that the Fed's really going to have to keep rates much higher than expected for much longer than expected. And that really changes the framework for investors here, because it means the stocks are going to have a lot more competition from bonds. Granted, long duration bonds, anything older than 10 years is getting pummeled right now because the Treasury's issuing so much debt to finance the deficit for the U.S. federal government. But ultimately, we're in a situation in which the two-year note is telling us the Fed's going to have to keep rates much higher for much longer, and that's not necessarily a great situation for stocks. I'm not saying we're going to enter some implosion or crash or recession right this second. I'm simply saying that it means stocks are rather richly valued right here and now, and that you should look for some nice setups to be buying once this correction is complete. That's all I've got for you this week. I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS. (laughs) 